from New York, this is Democracy Now! We just made history tonight in the third congressional district. In one of the most exciting victories for progressives and the Latinx and immigrant communities in Tuesday's midterm elections, Democratic State Representative Delia Ramirez won her election for Illinois' new third congressional district, making her the first Latina elected to Congress from Illinois. We'll go to Chicago to speak with Congressmember-elect Ramirez, who is the daughter of Guatemalan immigrants and the wife of a DACA recipient. Then we look at ranked choice voting, which was on the ballot Tuesday in Nevada and many cities and shaped the outcome of the Senate race in Alaska. Americans understand that our democracy is on life support. But in the 2022 midterm elections, we also saw some promising wins for democracy in the form of ranked choice voting. In Portland, Oregon, communities of color led a successful campaign for proportional ranked choice voting, the most transformative version of this reform. This campaign provides a roadmap for how we strengthen our democracy moving forward. As President Biden arrives at the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh and heads to the G20, a new Oxfam report on carbon billionaires says a wealth tax could help curb the urgent climate finance needs of developing countries. Two hours of emissions from a billionaire is equivalent to an entire year of emissions from someone from the poorest half of the entire population. One top billionaire's carbon footprint was found to be the same as four million people going vegan. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Three days after U.S. voters cast ballots in a critical midterm election, the balance of power in Congress rests on the outcomes of three yet-to-be-determined Senate contests and 30 congressional races. In Georgia, Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock kicked off a renewed reelection campaign on Thursday after he fell just shy of the 50 percent of votes needed to prevent a runoff on December 6 against his Republican opponent, the Trump-backed former football star Herschel Walker. And so I need you to fight like the future of Georgia and the future of America depends on it because it does. Are y'all ready to fight? Are you ready to get this done? Senator Raphael Warnock. In Nevada, Republican Adam Laxalt, a 2020 election denier, leads incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto by fewer than 9,000 votes, with about 100,000 mail-in ballots still to be counted. In Arizona, incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly leads Trump-backed Republican Blake Masters by more than 110,000 votes, with about one in five ballots yet to be counted. Arizona's gubernatorial race is even closer, with Democrat Katie Hobbs, the current Secretary of State, leading Trump-backed Republican Carrie Lake by just over one percentage point. Lake has repeatedly denied the outcome of the presidential election and has said she would only accept the election if she wins. Ahead of the midterms, election officials in Arizona's Maricopa County received more than 100 violent threats and intimidating communications. Bill Gates, the Republican chair of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, spoke to reporters Thursday. 
More people need to start speaking out and saying that that is absolutely unacceptable. No one should be the subject of death threats, but particularly not those who are simply trying to keep our democracy afloat and count the votes and make sure that every eligible voter's ballot is treated with respect. Meanwhile, Republicans have edged closer to a majority in the House of Representatives, but need to win at least seven of the remaining contests. One closely watched race is in Colorado's 3rd Congressional District, where the far-right, pro-gun, election-denying incumbent Republican Lauren Boebert leads Democrat Adam Frisch by about a 1,000 votes. That contest may be heading for a recount. Meanwhile, Democrat Tina Kotek has won a narrow victory in the Oregon governor's race. She joins Maura Healey of Massachusetts as the first open lesbian elected governor in the United States. Ukraine's military says it has reclaimed control over 100 square miles of territory in the Kherson region over the last 24 hours, including dozens of settlements. Ukraine's latest battlefield gains came as Russia's military claimed all its troops have retreated from Kherson city. Kherson is one of four Ukrainian territories Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed to have annexed in October. Elsewhere, officials in the city of Mikhailov say Russian attacks on a residential building killed six people overnight. This week, top U.S. General Mark Milley estimated more than 100,000 soldiers on each side of the conflict have been killed or wounded. His remarks came as The Wall Street Journal reported South Korea will, for the first time, sell artillery shells destined for Ukraine's military through a confidential arms deal between Seoul and Washington. The sale comes after North Korea's government denied reports it has sent artillery shells and ammunition to Russia for use in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has warned Russia's invasion has led to a dramatic rise in greenhouse gas emissions. This Russian war has brought about an energy crisis that has forced dozens of countries to resume coal-fired power generation in order to lower energy prices for their people at least a little to lower prices that are shockingly rising due to deliberate Russian actions. The Russian war brought an acute food crisis to the world, which hit worse those countries suffering from the existing manifestations of climate change, catastrophic droughts, large-scale floods. Zelensky's recorded remarks came in a video message played at the U.N. climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, on Tuesday. Egyptian authorities have denied entry to the country to the Italian human rights activist Giorgio Caracciolo from the anti-torture group Dignity, even though he was accredited to attend COP27. This comes amidst mounting international pressure to release the British-Egyptian political prisoner Al Abdel Fattah, who was denied a visit from his lawyer in his desert prison, as his family grows increasingly concerned for his life after he entered a complete food and water strike Sunday. President Biden's meeting with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi today in Sharm el-Sheikh in a direct appeal to Biden. 
Allah's sister, Sanasef, said, quote, you can make the difference here. You can save Allah. And you can show that there is some hope and potential for common sense, freedom, democracy. Don't fail us, please, she pleaded with President Biden. Meanwhile, Egypt's interior ministry announced a state of high alert after calls for demonstrations today. Cairo and other major cities are in a state of lockdown, with security forces maintaining a heavy presence in the streets. The White House says President Biden will meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping at the G20 summit next week in Bali, Indonesia. It'll be the pair's first in-person meeting Monday since Biden took office. The White House says the talks will focus on, quote, efforts to maintain and deepen lines of communication. Russian President Vladimir Putin will skip the G20 summit. In China, authorities have ordered new lockdowns affecting millions of people after the number of daily COVID-19 cases topped 10,000 for the first time since April. About 5 million residents of Guangzhou's downtown district have been confined to their homes through Sunday. Meanwhile, officials tightened COVID restrictions across Beijing after reporting a record 118 new locally transmitted cases. Many residents say they've been unable to leave Beijing since the start of the pandemic. Even on October 1st of this year for the National Day holiday, I couldn't go anywhere. And many of my colleagues have not been back home for a few years either. I'm thinking about going back home. But with the recent outbreaks, people can't leave, nor can they return to Beijing. In the occupied West Bank, two more Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces in separate incidents Wednesday. One of the victims was 15-year-old Madi Hashash from the Balata refugee camp in Nablus. In related news earlier this week in Geneva, Switzerland, Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq told a U.N. Human Rights Commission that Israel uses, quote, mafia methods of threats and intimidation to silence groups documenting Israeli violations of Palestinian rights. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., the State Department called out far-right Israeli politician Itamar Ben-Gvir for attending the memorial for Mayor Kahana, the ultra-nationalist founder of the racist Kach Party, which later became Kahana Kai. This is State Department spokesperson Ned Price. Celebrating the legacy of a terrorist organization is abhorrent. Uh, there is no other word for it. It is abhorrent. Uh, and we remain concerned, as we said before, by the legacy of Kahai uh, and the continued use of rhetoric among violent right-wing extremists. In May, the Biden administration removed Kahanahai from its list of foreign terrorist organizations, despite its connection to the murder of Palestinians and Arab Americans, including on U.S. soil. Itamar Ben-Gavir is expected to become a key member of Benjamin Netanyahu's new government. In Chicago, construction of the Obama Presidential Library was halted Thursday after work crews discovered a noose at the site. In a statement, the Obama Foundation wrote, This shameless act of cowardice and hate is designed to get attention and divide us. The U.S. Parole Commission has granted compassionate release to longtime prisoner Matulu Shakur after 36 years in prison. The 72-year-old black liberation activist likely has less than six months to live after he was diagnosed in prison with stage 3 bone marrow cancer. Shakur was part of the black nationalist group Republic of New Africa that worked with the Black Panther Party and others and is the stepfather of the late rapper icon Tupac Shakur. 
Washington, D.C.'s district attorney has filed a consumer protection lawsuit against the Washington Commanders and team owner Dan Snyder, along with the National Football League and its commissioner, Roger Goodell. The lawsuit laid out Thursday by D.A. Carl Racine alleges Snyder lied when he denied knowing about a hostile work environment and culture of sexual harassment at his franchise. In fact, the evidence shows Mr. Snyder was not only aware of the toxic culture within his organization, he encouraged it and he participated in it. Mr. Snyder exerted a high level of personal control over everything the commanders did, and his misconduct gave others permission to treat women in the same demeaning manner. The lawsuit alleges Commander's owner Snyder was joined by the NFL and its commissioner, Roger Goodell, in a campaign to mislead the public about what was being done to address harassment allegations. Prosecutors are seeking millions of dollars in penalties. Last year, the NFL levied a $10 million fine against the Washington football team after 15 women came forward with allegations of sexual harassment and verbal abuse. In Texas, a federal judge struck down the Biden administration's student loan relief program, calling it illegal. The ruling comes in response to a lawsuit by the conservative group, the Job Creators Network Foundation. The program was already on hold due to a challenge from a group of Republican-led states. The White House is appealing the order by Trump-appointed Judge Mark Pittman. The Education Department has already approved 16 million borrowers for up to $20,000 each of relief out of 26 million people who've applied for the program. 48,000 University of California graduate students, workers, are preparing to strike across all 10 UC campuses starting Monday. The student workers have organized with United Auto Workers and are demanding the university system pay a living wage and engage in good-faith bargaining for a fair union contract. Student workers recently rallied on the UC Berkeley campus. Can someone tell me why my peers have to skip meds in order to make ends meet? Can someone tell me why my peers are attending funerals on Zoom because they can't afford a plane ticket home? I'm not going to have money in my checking account by the end of this month. Now, these demands that we're putting forward for this new contract are making sure that we're able to have our basic necessities covered. Real equity, real access means paying living wages so that this university isn't just for those with generational wealth. And in more labor news, employees at HarperCollins Publishers launched an open-ended strike Thursday amid stalled contract negotiations. Workers are demanding HarperCollins increase pay and provide better paid leave benefits, as well as address its lack of diversity. HarperCollins is the publisher of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, as well as the books A Collective Bargain, Union Organizing in the Fight for Democracy, and Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Chicago, where one of the most exciting victories for progressives and the Latinx and immigrant communities in today's midterm elections took place. As Democratic State Representative Delia Ramirez won her Illinois election for the newly redrawn 3rd Congressional District, making her Illinois' first Latina elected to Congress. We just made history tonight in the third congressional district. 
Democrat Delia Ramirez is a progressive state representative who's the daughter of Guatemalan immigrants and the wife of a DACA recipient. She previously served in the Illinois State House after being elected in 2018, has for years been a community organizer. She formerly worked as the campaign manager of Common Cause Illinois and co-chaired the elected officials chapter of the state's Working Families Party affiliate. The Working Families Party played a key role in supporting her congressional race. Progressive members of Congress also supported her, including Senator Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. As The Intercept reports, Ramirez is now said to be, quote, poised to become a squad-adjacent member of Congress. But she had to overcome opposition, funded in part by the AIPAC-allied Super PAC Democratic Majority for Israel, or DMFI. The day after the election, Congressmember-elect Delia Ramirez spoke at a celebratory press conference held by the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. The seeds que ustedes han sembrado, that you have planted, are, boom, are blooming today. <laughs> you are sending yourselves to the General Assembly, to the State Senate, to the State House, to the county. You are working towards Lake County, Will County, Kane County, Suburban Cook, DuPage County, and building up in Cook County as well. But you've got a bunch more counties to go, and you are just getting started. For more, Congress member-elect Delia Ramirez joins us from Chicago. Welcome to Democracy Now! and congratulations. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. Honored to be here. Well, you talk about people sending themselves at every level um, of elected office, and you, the first Latina to be elected to Congress. Talk about who you represent and what you feel are the key issues that you want to represent in Congress. Look, when I announced on December 8th a year ago that we were running for Congress, I was really deliberate about making it we. That while my name was on the ballot in November and in June, I was taking the voices, the souls, the minds of the people that asked me to run. Uh, these are people who are struggling and paying for their child care. Uh, these are people that I helped house 10 years ago when I used to run a homeless shelter. These are the same people that I have been working with and building with so that we have progressives representing them in city council, in the state house, in the state senate. And these are people who have been fighting every single day to create affordable housing so that people can have, families can have stable housing security. So when I say we, uh, I wanted them to know that they may not be on the ballot, but they were going with me. They are going with me to Washington, D.C. And that was really important. Uh, it meant that 800 volunteers worked very hard endlessly, Amy, to make sure that I made it through a very, very challenging primary, a primary where my opponents, particularly one of them, did everything in his power to try to destroy my character, from commercials to mailers to radio to digital ads. And unfortunate for him, it backfired. 
uh, because the people on the doors knew that my track record was one of expanding health care coverage, of helping create democracy through an elected school board in Chicago. And I was someone uh, that had secured more than $1.5 billion in emergency housing relief to keep people in their homes during the pandemic. It was clear. People knew I had a track record. They knew I represented thousands of people in my journey in public service and that I was going, I am going to Congress to build on that work that we've done in Illinois. And so you asked me, what are the things I want to work on? You know, I kept saying, for me, this race is personal. I'm the daughter of immigrants. I have parents who can't afford their Medicare supplemental. My mother is on Medicaid, working minimum wage job as a home care worker. And as she cares for this 93-year-old senior, she worries about her diabetes medication and the fact that the agency that she works for pays so little that she can't afford the $550 a month health care insurance they offer because those co-pays and the cost of her insulin is almost a third of her entire income. This is a reality for me. I'm also the wife of a DACA recipient, someone that's been here since the age of 14. I'm entering Congress as the only member of Congress in a mixed-status family. So health care, Medicare for all, expanding health care access and quality is absolutely important to me. Finally delivering after 30 years of a conversation on immigration reform is not something I'm going to just co-sponsor, talk about, hashtag. I understand the urgency of the people that are sending me and the responsibility to be a leader on the issue. In short term, my hope and what I call uh, my future colleagues to do during lame duck is to finally pass the DREAM Act and give DACA recipients that pathway to citizenship that they deserve, that my husband deserves, that every single one of the young people who are not that young anymore, who look like me, who are my age, have been waiting for as they've contributed and called this place home for so long. And then I say to you, lastly, is the economy. What I heard people continue to say and what resonated was, yes, we've made some progress. Yes, we helped you keep your housing during the pandemic. Yes, we're helping you, you know, through some child tax credits, through some support services. But the reality is it's still not enough. You are still struggling with two jobs and barely making it. We have a responsibility to hold corporations accountable and all of those that have profited and created this inflation at the backs of everyday working people. So immigration, health care, economy are front and center for me. Let me ask you about your assessment of the Biden administration on immigration, continuing to support the Trump-era pandemic policies like Title 42, uh, which has blocked at least 2 million migrants from applying for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. What is your assessment of President Biden on immigration? I think President Biden has done some good work, and we have a lot more to do. The reality is that no one travels through Central America or through a jungle of Venezuela if it wasn't because they felt like it was life or death. The reality is that we also have to talk about what our relations with foreign policy is, right, and foreign partners or lack of. So there is a comprehensive immigration reform that we must take on and have to understand the root causes of migration,
People don't come here because they woke up and said, I think I'm bored here in Chiquimula, Guatemala, you know, and, and living, you know, nearly starving. I'm just going to figure out how to find $10,000 to begin a journey of traveling. That may mean I die. I get raped. I never make it to the other side. People are crossing the border because it's their only option to survival. In my opinion, these are refugees. These are people that are seeking asylum from countries that unfortunately are destroying the ability for their everyday people to have even the basic needs met. Let me ask you, uh, Congress member-elect, about reproductive rights, something you have championed for a long time. Their abortion was a referendum in five different states, and uh, abortion rights activists won every one. Three of those states, like Vermont and Michigan, um, enshrined abortion rights in the state constitution. And then there were two anti-abortion referenda, like one in Kentucky that was overwhelmingly defeated. Um, can you respond to this and how much further you want to go in Congress to protect um, reproductive rights? In Illinois in 2019, as a freshman state representative, I stood with 42 Democrat women in a state house for six hours demanding that our chamber codify Roe v. Wade, specifically preparing ourselves for this moment. It wasn't an easy fight, and I'll be honest with you, there were Democrats that didn't vote for it, and certainly not one Republican on the other side voted for it, although they knew clearly that they were voting against their, their best interest, their own interest, um, the women, re Republican women and others on the other side. To me, what I think about and what I saw here in Illinois and what I've seen across the country is that people are saying, women are saying people who were born with a with female uh, uh, with female reproductive system they are being clear to say you don't get to choose what i do over my body my decision to have a family is a decision between my family and my doctor and the second piece of that and i think particularly let me let me say amy in the latino community which i know people have said the red wave the republicans are investing so much in latinos because latinos don't support abortion there was no red wave in the latino community abortion right and the fear that if more Democrats are in, that we would codify Roe v. Wade, that didn't work in the favor of Republicans. We understand that abortion is health care and that if people care about fertility, people care about atopic pregnancies and dying from them, and people care about people having a right over their bodies, that making sure that we protect our ability and our right to abortions is pivotal to our livelihood. That was clear. That was clear in the Latino community. That was clear across the country. So what I want to do is I want to make sure there's never a federal ban on abortion. What I want to do is to make sure that we're educating people on what abortion care and reproductive rights is and what it isn't, right? Because the amount of misinformation and this idea that you go into communities of color and you just spread all this misinformation because they don't know better— I mean, that to me is the epitome of what white supremacy and racism is. The truth is that on election night, on November 8th, at 9, 10, 11 p.m., people across the country responded clearly and said, we know better. We are educated. We know what we need 
and we know what we need to protect. And then your thoughts, finally, on on the one hand, you had a number of progressives um, who won, like Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. She'll be the first African-American Congress member to represent Pennsylvania. And you've got Greg Kassar in Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. who is the youngest elected member of the Austin City Council. Um, but you also have Greg Abbott, who uh, won his reelection, the Texas governor. And you've got, of course, Ron DeSantis in Florida, who mm -hmm. easily won his reelection. Uh, two men who have sent asylum seekers to cities like New York and your city, Chicago, um, in a kind of sh defiant show of um, anti-immigrant uh, zeal, with Ron DeSantis possibly being a presidential candidate in 2024. Your final comments about how you feel it's most important to represent immigrants in this country today. Yeah. Look, the fear-mongering and scapegoating of immigrants is not a new thing. They've done this to us, and you will see that every single election cycle, all of a sudden, you hear about caravans. In this case, we were hearing about Venezuelans coming through the border, and you have seen people you, traffic immigrants across this country, put them on planes. Uh, this could not have been more painful to see. I, I met a three-year-old Camila who already had learned at the age of three that she had to give me an alias because she was so afraid that her family would get deported uh, in Texas, uh, where she'd get deported if she got sent to Florida. The reality is that if we say that we are a country of diversity, if we say we are a country that welcomes all people, that is a superpower, a beautiful nation, right, that stands on justice and love, then we should be a country that's pro-immigrant and the reality that in this moment we are not. But my hope comes from Maxwell Frost in Florida. My hope comes from Greg Kassar in Texas. My hope comes from Michelle Vallejo that may have not won the election in Texas 15, but she is moving the needle and moving the needle. And the reality is that in 10 months, we'll be circulating petitions again, and I hope Michelle runs again. That some of the local work we do will be so critical as we actually move the needle in gubernatorial races. Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, and the extremist Republicans are scared. They are so scared of who we are and that this daughter of immigrants whose mother crossed the border of Mexico and Guatemala to come here, pregnant of me, nearly drowning, is about to go to Congress. That is fear to them. Because I represent an electorate that is growing, an electorate that expects us to deliver for all people and put the politics to the side and make working families a priority. That's going to impact their profits. That's going to impact the corporations that continue to profit at the expense of our people. But we're here. We're not leaving. We're representing six of us. Latinos are going to Congress, and those numbers will continue to grow because we understand the importance of multicultural coalition building for all working people. Well, Congress member-elect Delia Ramirez, thank you so much for being with us. The first Latina congresswoman to be elected to Congress, not only to represent Illinois, but to represent the Midwest. Previously served in the Illinois State House after being elected in 2018, longtime community organizer, daughter of Guatemalan 
Allen, immigrant's wife of a DACA recipient. Thank you so much. Next up, Thank we look at ranked choice voting. What is it? It was on the ballot Tuesday in Nevada and many cities and shaped the outcome of the Senate race in Alaska. Stay with us. Divino Maravilloso by the longtime Brazilian singer Gal Costa, who died Wednesday at the age of 77 after a career that spanned over five decades. Brazil's recently elected president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, posted on Instagram that Costa was one of the best singers in the world, one of our foremost artists who brought the name and sounds of Brazil to the entire planet. He said the country lost one of its great voices today. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at how voters chose to expand the use of the election method known as ranked choice voting during Tuesday's midterm elections. Ranked choice voting was on the ballot in the entire state of Nevada and many cities. It also shaped the outcome of races where it's already in place. Supporters say it could reduce polarization in politics, give more voice to independent voters, among other things. In Nevada, the yes vote leads for a a ballot measure that would change the state's elections to a system of a nonpartisan primary that allows voters to choose candidates from any party. After the primary, ranked choice general elections would let voters rank their top five candidates who advanced. Meanwhile, in Maine's largest city of Portland and in Evanston, Illinois, voters back measures to use ranked choice voting in city elections. In Alaska, the state's ranked choice voting system will decide which candidate will represent the state in Congress after the Senate race remained undecided when none of the candidates received half the vote. Voters in Alaska approved the new system in 2020. The 2022 August special election was the first time they were used in the state. In that election, Democrat Mary Peltola beat former governor and 2008 Republican vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin to fill an open U.S. congressional seat. Peltola campaigned on reproductive rights and made history as the first Alaska native in Congress. For more, we're joined by George Chung, director of More Equitable Democracy, who's been following all of this very closely. We welcome you to Democracy Now! George, you've said ranked choice voting is a necessary step in the unsexy but critical work of crash-proofing our democracy. Can you explain what you mean? Assume people haven't even heard of ranked choice voting, though it's happening all over the country. Yes. Uh, first, I want to say thank you, Amy, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. <clears throat> 
Currently, um, we in the United States use a system uh, for our elections called uh, winner-take-all with plurality uh, rules, uh, meaning that uh, candidates, uh, whoever has the most uh, votes uh, on election day, uh, wins that election, uh, which means that a plurality could win uh, uh, and a majority uh, could, uh, in fact, vote for a different candidate. So ranked choice voting is a both a uh, ballot style and a tabulation method uh, in which uh, voters get to rank their choices, let's say one through five, or potentially as many candidates as there are on the ballot. Um, and then once you start telling them, uh, the uh, you look at if someone receives a, a majority of votes, and if someone does, um, then the election's over. If there isn't, then usually the last place candidate gets uh, eliminated, and those votes get retabulated or reallocated to those voters' second choices, uh, and that process continues to repeat itself. Uh, and so, in terms of like. The actual reform itself, uh, the best version of ranked choice voting is when you don't actually have a primary, uh, when you have lots of voice uh, choices on the, in the general election for for voters to choose on uh, with high turnout, uh, and therefore you get uh, the most uh, voice for those um, for those voters. Explain what happened in Alaska so can, people can really understand how this played out. So in Alaska, which recently approved uh, ranked choice voting, it's a top four system. Um, so in the primary, you choose a candidate, uh, and then based on the results of uh, the primary, four candidates go to the general election. Uh, and so you had three fairly high-profile candidates uh, with lots of name recognition, uh, and candidates—I'm sorry, voters—would just rank their choices. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm uh, for um, Mary Peltola, uh, native Alaskan, uh, who ended up getting the most number of votes, but uh, looks like she didn't get the majority. Uh, however, um, voters, because there is ranked choice voting in Alaska, were allowed to rank their choices. And um, since uh, it seems like it may play out very similarly uh, to uh, the special election, um, the bottom vote-getter will get uh, eliminated, and those uh, votes will get reallocated uh, to other candidates. And because um, uh, I believe that— uh, um, uh, Representative Peltola, since she is uh, currently in office now, uh, campaigned in a way that really uh, engaged uh, uh, voters deeply and said, you know, if you don't uh, want to vote for me for uh, your first choice, vote for me for your second choice. So that's uh, and also a big benefit of ranked choice voting, because it uh, uh, forces candidates uh, to really continue to um, engage all voters, uh, as opposed to saying, well, if you're not going to vote for me, I'm just going to uh, move on to the next voter. Um, talk about Portland, Maine, and Evanston, Illinois. So, one really important thing to know is that there are different versions of ranked choice voting. And at the core, we really need to understand that we use a system uh, called winner-take-all. Uh, this is a really old system uh, that dates back into the 1400s. Uh, and so, beginning in the, about the 1800s, uh, there were movements uh, towards uh, big reforms as 
uh, as the franchise began to expand uh, to people who didn't have wealth, uh, to women, to people of color, uh, and many countries and American cities uh, ended up uh, doing a lot of reforms in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, and so that really stopped uh, by the time of World War II and the Red Scare, because a lot of people of color and progressives started to get elected. What's really exciting in Portland, Oregon, uh, is the story of communities of color uh, led by the co uh, Coalition of Communities of Color in Portland, Oregon. Um, there was a lot of uh, frustration about the city government because it's, uh, it was elected all at large, uh, meaning that you had to run essentially a congressional race in order to win. Um, and there was a, a really meaningful um, charter review process that was run by the city, uh, where communities of color uh, had a leadership role in uh, educating themselves about the implications of electoral change, uh, really engaged deeply to deliberate about what reforms they wanted to see, uh, and actually came out with a recommendation. Seventeen out of the 20 commissioners agreed uh, to put a form of uh, ranked choice voting on the ballot, a form known as uh, proportional representation. Uh, that uh, went to the ballot, and on election uh, night, uh, the results uh, show that the uh, charter reform was winning uh, by about 10 points, uh, 55 to 45. Uh, the form uh, of the reform would essentially create uh, four multi-member districts uh, with ranked choice voting, uh, meaning that each district, uh, you only need 25 percent of the vote share to win one of those seats. This really will open doors uh, for communities of color, for low-income people, for renters uh, to be uh, fully represented uh, in that legislative body. And just in terms of uh, historical context, uh, this form of ranked choice voting hasn't been enacted uh, since uh, New York City did in the mid-1930s. And talk about what happened in Seattle, Washington. Seattle, Washington uh, had uh, ranked choice voting uh, as well as approval voting on the ballot. Um, this was uh, being promoted by— um, and again, explain the difference between ranked choice voting and approval voting. Oh, right. Uh, ranked choice voting, as I've already explained, um, approval voting uh, is a different system in which uh, you essentially get to uh, give like a Facebook like or a thumbs up uh, to candidates, as many candidates as you want. Uh, and so there was an interesting head to head uh, approval voting. Uh, supporters gathered enough signatures to put it on the ballot. Um, and the city council, uh, given that there wasn't a deep deliberative process that they had, let's say, in Portland, uh, decided that it was important for voters to have a choice and put ranked choice voting side-by-side uh, -side, uh, with approval voting. Uh, so there were two questions. Shall there be change in terms of uh, the uh, system of elections? And uh, if there is a change, which should be approval or ranked choice voting? Uh, the first question in terms of should there be a change is still on the bubble. It's about 50-50, and we won't know for a couple of weeks in terms of the outcome of that election. But in terms of the choice between approval voting, uh, which many, including myself, believe uh, that it is potentially um, could dilute the uh, voting rights of uh, communities of color uh, versus ranked choice voting, which has shown to um, really uh, allow for more voice for communities of color, uh, voters supported ranked choice voting by a margin of three to one. So we're really excited that uh, ranked choice voting, uh, pr particularly proportional ranked choice voting, is really gain gaining steam in this country. 
George Chung, if you can talk about, well, you now have ranked choice voting in two state elections, right, in Alaska and Maine, and 10 cities. Who are the forces for ranked choice voting, and who is fighting against it? I would say the forces for ranked choice voting are people who really care about democracy. We know that our democracy is really uh, in danger. It's really fragile. Uh, and so people from all walks of life are really coming out of the woodwork uh, to really think deeply about what's uh, at stake uh, and really starting to have conversations beginning at the local level about how we can really strengthen democracy uh, so that we all have choices uh, that really res uh, reflect who we are. Who's really opposed to it are, frankly, the powers that be. Uh, the current system of winner-take-all with plurality elections uh, really favors uh, particularly uh, fringe elements uh, on the right in particular uh, who have been able to really dominate uh, the redistricting process to draw districts that really favor uh, incumbents and uh, their own party uh, and really uh, are really nervous about any change. Uh, I think what's really important to know is that ranked choice voting and proportional representation doesn't favor any particular party, uh, but essentially is a system that allows for a truer representation of who we are as a community. Do you see any chance of a presidential election being ranked choice voting? Well, uh, I would say that I think about winner-take-all elections as an old car that your grandma gave to you when you're in high school. Sure, you can uh, change the ignition and rotate the tires, uh, but in the end, it's an old car, and ultimately you have to buy a new car or find another different way to work. Uh, we so you're will continue. comparing ranked choice voting to an electric car? I would say that, you know, we have been using a system uh, that has been in place f since the 1400s with very, very little change. Uh, and so as we have become more of a, uh, a multiracial society, we need to have rules that reflect that. Uh, and, f and frankly speaking, uh, winner-take-all elections with plurality rules uh, are just um, at odds with achieving a multiracial democracy. George Chung, I want to thank you for being with us, director of More Equitable Democracy. Next up, carbon billionaires. Stay with us. Ever patiently waiting with the demons we deserve. Better be willing to pay with every dream that you deferred. If the vehicle should swerve, learn to lean into the curve. After working up the nerve, almost equal in size. I walked around with the iron for any wrinkle in time. I paid a piece of my mind for every nickel and dime. But never less than a five and never slept on a job. A killer trap with your squad, yet never left the garage. Where your God was close enough to see the flesh of his eyes. Get to the button and press it's what the message advised. What's the threat behind a message with? Aquaman 
Danger Mouse and Black Thought featuring Michael Kiwanuka. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As President Biden arrives at the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, then heads to the G20 meeting in Bali, Indonesia, a new Oxfam analysis looks at the investments of 125 of the world's richest billionaires and reveals that, on average, they're emitting 3 million tons a year of carbon, more than a million times the average person. The report, the report is titled Carbon Billionaires and suggests a wealth tax could help curb the urgent climate finance needs of developing countries. For more, we go to London, uh, where we're joined by the report's co-author, Ashfaq Alfan, Climate Justice Director at Oxfam America. We welcome you to Democracy Now! So tell us who the climate billionaires are and just how much carbon dioxide they are emitting. The carbon billionaires are, you know, represent household names, uh, billionaires. So you can, you know, can imagine who they are. Um, so we looked at the richest 220 people and assessed which of them there was data for the emissions from their investments. So these are not emissions uh, from their personal lifestyles, the private jets, the large houses, but from where they decide to put their money. Um, and it's, you know, gen they, they, we, we find that they tend to do it more in polluting industries rather than in clean industries, twice the average investor. And um, so the, the amounts are staggering. I mean, the amount uh, emitted by one of these average billionaires is the same as uh, you know, the equivalent of four uh, million people um, going vegan and thus not in reducing their emissions or, you know, the uh, flying around the earth 16 million times in a private jet. The amounts are just staggering. Um, and uh, we, we were, you know, surprised. And it just goes to show how much power and control a few people have over our economic system and beyond that, our, our, our way of life, our survival as uh, you know, as humanity. Um, so, as you say, the investments of 125 billionaires produce um, 393 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions every year, equivalent CO2 output to the entire country of France, makes the average billionaire's annual emissions a million times higher than a person in the poorest 90 percent of the world's population. So, number one, how is this curbed? And number two, what is Oxfam um, right now, this report, released during the U.N. Climate Summit, which will Democracy Now! will be broadcasting from live all next week in Sharm el-Sheikh. Um, what are you demanding at this point? What do you think can change the course of uh, who is destroying the planet and how to turn that around? The answer really uh, lies with governments. They have the power to to, to regulate uh, the billionaires in a couple of ways. Um, one is through a wealth tax uh, that will actually raise uh, money, reduce the extent of the control of the billionaires, and raise a huge amount of money. Could it could raise something like 1.4 trillion dollars uh, a year? Uh, that's a significant amount, and that could pay for the annual requirements to help poor countries adapt to climate change, protect their people from climate change, um, address the uh, provide, uh, 
you know, repair the harms caused, you know, repairing the schools, um, helping people rebuild their lives, and contribute to the tran- transition to clean energy, across, uh, renewable energy across the world. Uh, that could be done just with a wealth tax. We're not only recommending that, we're also recommending a tax uh, on the profits from fossil fuels, um, uh, or co- corporation, uh, you know, from uh, corporate taxes as, as well as the, the earnings of billionaires. Uh, not, a, not a temporary tax, but one which is permanent and would create an incentive for these billionaires to shift their funds to um, cleaner sources um, of, of, of energy. In fact, they should actually be funding the renewable energy revolution, and they're, not, they're, just, they're just not doing that. So governments have the power to, to, to leverage these changes. They can also require companies to, um, to reduce their emissions, to shift to science-based targets, even report their emissions. By the way, I should say that the emissions that we've talked about, these are an underestimate. These are only their reported emissions. This is only what, this is only what they admit to, and it's only their direct emissions. It doesn't include the emissions from their products. So we've, we've taken a very, very conservative approach so that we can be absolutely sure about the numbers. But it, it's an underestimate, and it doesn't even include the emissions that come from the policies that billionaires are pushing, and, and you know, in terms of their funding of politicians, and you know, what they ask politicians to do when they pick up the phone. Um, Ashfaq, you tweeted about what uh, the U.S. climate ambassador, John Kerry, has just announced at the U.N. Climate Summit. Uh, the whole Biden team has just arrived in Sharm el-Sheikh. Um, Wednesday was finance day at COP27. The U.S. climate ambassador, Kerry, took the opportunity to make a pitch uh, to help developing economies transition from coal to clean energy. He proposed creating a new car market, a way for corporations to fund efforts to decommission coal plants and build wind and solar projects in exchange for carbon credits that can be used to bolster their green image. Now, there's also a lot of criticism of this. That's right. And it's, um, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, his, his intentions are you know, it's good. He's good. It's good. He's trying to do that, but he's going about it the wrong way. Um, those carbon credits are illusory. It's 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 very unlikely that it's going to generate anything like the amount of uh, money that's required to fund that transition. Um, carbon credits. There's a long history of them being a mirage, uh, used uh, as false solutions, um, really by a lot of fossil fuel interests to avoid action, to delay action. Um, and there's no reason to believe that this would be this would be any any different. Um, it's 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 really a pity that they're um, uh, you know distracting uh, from what they really need to do, um, which is to um, raise the the public finance, which is which is needed. Um, if governments put on the table you know a significant amount of public finance, that will draw in the private investments that's needed, um, and that's and that's. You know, essentially, the way the way it needs to be done. Um, we, you know, and during during COP, and you'll probably see this next week uh, as well. When 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 you're there, uh, Secretary Kerry keeps talking about how difficult it is to get the money out of out of Congress. In fact, he said a couple of times that, oh, you know, if the Republicans uh, win Congress, uh, we won't be able to. We won't. That's the end of climate finance. Which which you know, that's that's uh, that's a pity that he's 
talking down um, what can be achieved, and he's pro pro proposing alternative solutions that could then be taken up by those who are opposed to international climate finance. But, but unfortunately, we'll just not will just not work. And the thing is, we don't have time to wait and see it not work. Uh, it's too urgent to provide the money really quickly, really soon. And so we are saying that. Um, uh, you know, Secretary Kerry and, and, and President Biden have to make climate finance a non-negotiable in Congress um, and, and make the hard case. You know, they, they, you know, they, they're, 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 you know, they, they can be strong when they when they want to. They've done it before throughout their lives, and they need to do so now because uh, it may seem like something technical or something remote from the concerns of the average American, but. Uh, I think average Americans know that cl the climate sh uh, crisis will affect them and everybody else. And climate finance is necessary. We won't be able to uh, protect uh, people across the world if developing countries don't have the resources they need to, to, to shift to renewable energy. So it's, it's existential for everybody and it's a it's worthwhile investment um, to, to, to be making. Mm. Um I wanted to ask you about this new AP report that says the war-inspired natural gas boom is undermining already insufficient efforts to limit future warming to just a few more tenths of a degree. Uh, planning and building up of liquefied and other natural gas due to an energy crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine would add 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent a year um, to the air by 2030. This is according to a report that came out of Climate Action Tracker at the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. Your response? Oh, well, they're absolutely right, and, and, and it's, it's, it's really great that you're talking about this. Um, it, it, is, it, is, it is a real worry. Um, you, they are, you know, there is a, a gas shortage in Europe, um, and, 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 that's, and that's genuine. There's, you know, there, there, there are energy needs every day, and people, those needs need to be met. But uh, what's pretty, pretty despicable is uh, seeing a lot of fossil fuel interests take advantage of that um, to... You know, promote growth, which is not a growth in fossil fuel infrastructure, which is not necessary to meet the urgent needs of the energy needs of today. Um, the, you know, things that won't even come online um, in the next few years, but will will uh, exist in a, you know in a decade um, as uh, you know as carbon assets that, that will be used. Governments really should instead be. Uh, um, doubling down on energy efficiency, on the switch to renewables, uh, doing things, you know, insulating homes, things that can be done really quickly, you know, within a six-month time frame, uh, reducing that energy demand and, and providing people, you know, everybody with the, the, the support, the, the information, the, the, uh, the subsidies that are required to do that. that that's the way, that's the solution uh, to this um, to the, to the natural gas uh, crisis. It, it is really disappointing that in the United States we see permitting reform being pushed as a, as a solution when it's a false solution and one which will really f um, safeguard fossil fuel interests, um, in, you know, including the carbon billionaires, uh, many of whom are actually pushing these sorts of uh, changes at the expense of communities um, whose, uh, whose rights, you know, indigenous people will be harmed. Ashfaq, we only have 10 yes. seconds. Have any of the carbon billionaires responded to your report? Uh, 
Not that I'm aware of. I'm, I'm sure they will. <laughs> well, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Ashfaq Khafan is Climate Justice Director at Oxfam America, co-author of the new report, Carbon Billionaires. We will link to that report. Uh, he was speaking to us from London. Democracy Now! is headed to Sharm el-Sheikh, where all next week we will be covering the U.N. Climate Summit there in Egypt, bringing you reports from on the ground, inside and outside the summit. Uh, that does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Nick Guster, Messiah Reds, and Amin Sheikh, Maria Teosena, Tammy Warnock, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Mary Conlon. Special thanks to our executive director, Julie Crosby.